You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. If you, uh, if you walked in late, tuned in late a little bit, didn't get to hear what's going on in the building today because you walked in and as, as dads, you were probably like, it's Father's Day. Oh, yes, I am the king. Right? Wrong. Uh, I thought that. I thought that. Uh, so uh, we got Vacation Bible School coming up this week. Starting tomorrow, it's going to be fantastic. Although I have a lot of questions. I, I promise you I was focused on worship, but I was struggling with a giant barrel full of weapons. And I'm wondering, you've got the axe and you've got the sword uh, and you've got the spear. And then you've got the weapon of choice, the shovel from your fireplace. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. Although the Three Stooges did teach me that that's probably the best weapon that, uh, that one could have. Uh, I, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 15 today. Um, and really what we're doing is we're picking up where we left off last week as Jesus made this trip up to uh, this region of Tyre and Sidon. But to do that, let me just set the stage with a story. There's a story I heard about a, a young boy who... Uh, Family woke up in the middle of the night and their house was on fire. He, he was in an upstairs bedroom and uh, smoke was coming from under his door and all he could do was climb out of his window and make his way up onto the roof of the house. And he's terrified and he's panicked and uh, the fire trucks start pulling up. The neighbors are all coming out, but there's so much smoke he can't see a thing and he just starts yelling out for his dad. Daddy, where are you? Daddy, where are you? And and his, he hears his father's voice say, I'm down here, I'm outside, jump. And, and the boy again he said, I can't, I'm, I'm scared, uh, where are you, where are you? And that's, I'm right here. He says, jump. And he said, but daddy, I can't see you. And the dad says, that doesn't matter, I can see you, jump. That's, that's, that's what what we have in the God that loves us and cares about us. He knows what we're going through. He knows our struggles. He knows our fears. He knows what we need. And even though we maybe have a hard time trusting, we have a hard time uh, seeing Him, we have a hard time seeing God at work as He promises that He always is, the one thing that we can trust is that He sees us. He's got us. And He wants us just to follow fully after him. Today I want to talk about having a beyond belief. One that says that I know that you are a God that, that does more. I know that you're a God that sees beyond the situation that I'm in. I know you're a God that can do more. I just need to learn to jump. If we want our lives to improve, we have to trust the God that promises to do the refining. If we want our lives to have purpose, we've got to follow and trust the God that designed us and that created us and put us on this earth. If we want things to get better in life, then we have to trust the God who only does what's best. Last week we saw Jesus' journey from his home in Capernaum there on the Sea of Galilee. And he made his way up about 30-some miles, we believe, up to this region of Tyre and Sidon. Remember, we talked about this last week, uh, that, that this is a region that didn't follow after God. Uh, they didn't follow the God of Israel. Uh, they had uh, followed more pagan practices. And then what, we ha- what happens today is he makes his journey 
going back home, but he takes a really long route to get there. Jesus had gone to the region of Tyre and Sidon because of the pressure that was on him from the religious elite that wanted him dead. Remember, he was, the things that he was teaching were challenging their laws and their rules, their man-made laws and rules, the way that they interpreted how God wanted them to live. Jesus was pushing back against that, saying, let me actually tell you what those are all about. Because why? Because he wrote it. And, and, and they didn't like him, and they wanted him dead, but it was not his time. Jesus would go to the cross that we just got done singing about to give up his life for us, but he would do it willingly in his time, and it wasn't time yet. The crowd was starting to grow there around Galilee, so he got away, it said, to just be away from the crowd for a while, maybe to let things settle down. But then this woman approached him and who had a, a demon-oppressed uh, daughter, and Jesus healed the daughter based on the faith of the mother, who shouldn't have had a faith in the first place because she wasn't uh, one of God's people. She wasn't a, a Jew. She was a Gentile. But Jesus cared, and he healed. And her daughter's life was changed. Her life was changed. But as you can imagine, as we pick up in our text today, uh, that if something like that were to happen in our city, word would get out pretty quickly, and it would start to spread. And people would want to know, who is this person that performs miracles? And that leads us then to Matthew 15. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at verses 29 to 39, but I just want to read for you just the first few verses in this section that, because uh, there's, in your Bibles, probably two different sections of 29 to 39, but I just want to read the first one so that we don't get ahead of ourselves. So if you uh, are willing, let's stand. I want to read this text to you. So Jesus went on from there, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and Jesus healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing and they glorified the God of Israel. Let's pray. So, Father, um, it, this morning we just pause, uh, as we've now read your word, to ask you to show us what it is that you want us to know about you, more about your word, the beauty of it, about your Son, Jesus Christ, about us, God, and about the world that we live in. So the only way for us to understand it fully is to ask you to, to just let your spirit speak clearly to us through the words I speak, through the words that we read here in the text, God, so that we could have our lives changed for the better, falling more in love with you, glorifying you the way that those that were healed did. So we ask that you would Clear our minds from distraction this morning to just be able to focus on you. We give you praise. Amen. You can have a seat. So when it comes to a, a beyond belief, as I just break down this text uh, today, I want us to look at, first of all, just this small section about miracles. And always understanding, as we talk about and we study Jesus' miracles uh, that we read about in the Gospels, that there's actually more at play than than just someone being healed of an illness, a sickness, or a disease. There is more than miracles that are going on here. I, 
I once heard it said that the land of Israel itself is the fifth gospel. Now what that means is that in order to fully understand uh, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, why he did what he did, is to really be able to, to understand where he did it. Because if we don't take the time, a lot of times we don't, we don't pay attention. You're doing your devotions, we're reading scripture, and you just kind of blow through where it happens because for us we think, ah, maybe that, it doesn't really matter. But let me tell you, it matters in today's text as well. As it tells us that, first of all, as we studied last week, he was in Tyre and Sidon, which is 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Far enough away, Jesus thought that he could get away from the crowd. Now he's back beside the Sea of Galilee is what Matthew tells us. Uh, now if you need to know more detail, which I think we do, uh, what you would do is you'd go to the book of Mark and the parallel passage of him telling this story because he had some details that Matthew really didn't feel that was necessary. And what Mark tells us is that he goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the area of the Decapolis. Uh, which is important to know because the Decapolis area, these 10 cities, there's nine on the east side of the, the Jordan River that cuts the middle of Israel there, and then Scythopolis that was the capital of the Decapolis that is there on just over on the west side of, of, of the Jordan River. Um, I say all of that because the importance of it is, is that that is Gentile land. West of the Jordan River would be the Jewish people, God's people, east side would be a Gentile region. You see Tyre way up on the top. Jesus, if he's going to go home, you would think would take the short route and just go straight down to Capernaum, but he doesn't. He takes the long road. What you can't see where it says Galilee at the top of that map is that there is a giant mountain right there. So Jesus has to make a decision. Am I going to take the short route back home or am I going to take the long road longer than it was, took to get there to make my way back down to the, uh, to the other side of the Sea of God. There's purpose, and there's meaning behind all of this. See, the Decapolis is made up of, of ten cities, uh, really uh, kind of uh, hundreds of years before Jesus, overseen by a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. And he started this process of, of Hellenization. It means to bring in Greek culture into every, every part of life. Uh, after Alexander the Great died, his, his nation was really divided up among what he promised to all of his generals. So each of the generals got a city that made up the, the, the Decapolis, these ten pagan cities. And then there was uh, another leader that took over around 64 BC. His name was Pompey. And Pompey uh, saw to it that all of the, the cities of Alexander the Great became really their own independent Roman uh, their cities, but really their own independent Roman government themselves. The nation of Israel was overseen by the Roman government. They were under the authority, but they were allowed to operate under God's law and God's rule. And it was kind of the role of the, those Pharisees, the religious leaders, to make sure that everybody uh, kind of fell in line and, and didn't ruffle the feathers of, uh, of the Roman government. If they ever sensed an uprising, then the government might come in and... and and strip everything away from them, which is another reason why they, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. He was causing an uprising. But what's happening, I'm explaining this for a purpose and a reason, what's happening in these ten cities of the Decapolis is, is Hellenization, Greek influence. And the Greeks believe that the ultimate authority in life was you as a human, that, that, that you're 
The role, the reason that you're here on this earth is to try and be as happy as you possibly can, doing whatever it takes for you to get there. So it was just all about pleasure. Uh, it was no holds barred. Anything goes. That was the Greek culture of the day. That's what was happening in these cities. They had no idea about sin and a holy God. They believed that the gods, the Greek gods, were there to really kind of serve you, to make you just a better person for your own joy and your own happiness. Pleasure was the goal for every person. That's the only thing that mattered. Which kind of gives us a better understanding of why the Pharisees seem to be so strict all the time. Why they place a greater what we call a hedge of protection around God's laws because of the influence of the Greek culture of just nothing but pleasure, self-pleasure all the time. That They said, so we, we have to protect ourselves and our people from falling into that. And so that was their role. If you looked at other uh, Jewish religious uh, sects of the day, then you also had the Sadducees. The Sadducees, uh, following God as much as they can, but they were heavily influenced by the Greek culture. It was kind of like you can, you can kind of have the best of both worlds. There was another group, they were known as the Zealots, and they fought violently against Hellenization, against Greek culture. The Essenes were a group that just decided the best way to do this is just isolate ourselves from society altogether. Then that would show our holiness. That would show that we truly love God. What I love about all of this, and here's what we get to. Jesus travels from Tyre. He's going back home. He ends up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in, in Greek territory. Uh, and he chose to go there. The Pharisees made more laws. The Essenes isolated. The Sadducees caved to the culture. The Zealots fought against it. But Jesus went there. He went there and he cared for people in the middle of all of it. So Mark tells us that there's a man with a, a, a speech impediment that actually starts kind of this whole movement that takes place. And, and he was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. And then Jesus said to him, now don't, he said, don't go tell anybody what, what just happened to you. Why? Because Jesus still, he knows, my time's not yet. And, and again, we, as we studied last week, he said, my mission is to come and to, and to preach to the lost sheep of Israel. It'll be the role of my disciples to go out after I'm gone and take the gospel to the world. So Jesus, though, uh, heals this woman's daughter. You can imagine word starts to spread a little bit. They know a little bit about him. Now all of a sudden, so somebody brings a friend that can't speak very well and says, could you heal him? And Jesus heals him. It's a great story. And, and then, but he says, but, now, but don't go and tell anybody. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was somebody who, who was really ashamed and afraid to speak in public, and I'd never really done it before, but all of a sudden somebody comes along and miraculously heals me, and in a really weird way, you know, putting his fingers in my ears, that's what Jesus did, and then spits and puts it on this guy's tongue, and all of a sudden he can talk. I don't know about you, but you couldn't shut me up. I, I would tell everybody about it, because people are going to know. As you walk in the door and you start talking to your family, you're like, whoa, what's up? What changed? And then they're going to go and tell people. And then Mark actually says that the more Jesus told people not to tell others, the more zealously they went out 
to go and, and tell them. Because that's just what you do. How could you not go and tell the world that things had been changed for you? Isaiah makes a prophecy in chapter 35 about when the Redeemer comes. And it says when he comes to Lebanon, which that was Tyre and Sidon. And so there was this prophecy of there is going to be a big change coming and a highway of righteousness. A road of righteousness is going to be paved through Lebanon. And you're going to know because when he comes, it says he's going to, he's going to give sight to the blind. And he's going, to, he's going to give words to those that aren't able to speak. And, and those that aren't able to walk will walk again. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy that Isaiah had given. Everybody that was brought to him, Jesus began to heal. Their healing wasn't the end result, though. Jesus came, yes. He fulfilled the prophecy, yes. Did he heal them? Yes. But there was more to it, and there's purpose and there's meaning behind it that everybody who saw what took place was in awe they all wondered how in the world and it says and they gave glory to the god of israel that's the mission that jesus was was after he came to proclaim the kingdom had come that god's kingdom was here that he was the savior to the people that that didn't know anything about this they didn't have an understanding of growing up and hearing about this Savior that would come, Jesus shows up and He does what He can. He, he just loves on the people and He fixes their issues and their problems, but not for the sole purpose of them just being healed. That's never the point. He wanted to show them that there is a God that sees them, that cares about them, that can fix anything that they need. And in result, then later on when the disciples would go out after Jesus' resurrection and the disciples would go out and preach the gospel to all nations, that it would click with them. It would make sense that He cares about their hearts and their souls for all of eternity. In Matthew 4, early on in Jesus' ministry, He began to heal people and it says words spread about Him all throughout Syria, Galilee, and the Decapolis. So there had already been kind of the, a foundation laid. People living in this Gentile area had heard about there's a guy who, who, who's, who's over there in Capernaum. And when he shows up, things happen. Things change. We don't know what it's all about, but he's a, they say he's a miracle worker. So when Jesus begins to heal, the crowd starts to form. So you can imagine it starts in Tyre and Sidon. And so with, with this woman's daughter being uh, healed of being oppressed by a demon and then it goes to this man who can't speak and people just begin to bring their loved ones and it probably begins in Tyre and by the time that they get over to the Sea of Galilee having walked probably three or four days the crowd now is numbering the thousands tens of thousands having a a beyond belief doesn't mean believing that Jesus is just going to do what we ask, a beyond belief, goes beyond the ask, beyond our needs. A beyond belief understands that God doesn't want to just see a world full of healthy people. They're going to hell. He, he wants to see people who, who understand that He is the one that changes lives. And they put their trust in Him. And praise Him and worship Him and depend fully on Him and be living examples of God's good work in this world. Jesus cares, gives us this example. By the time he, he lands in a place that, that is not his home, 
but is the home of a lot of lost people, he stops. And here they are by the thousands, and he's healing them. And they're giving God praise. They want to know more about this God of Israel. And here's what happens next in verse 32. You can stay seated for this. But Jesus calls his disciples to him, and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Right? That, again, uh, they've got to travel back home. Some of them, three or four days. And they, they just came, like, because that's what you would do. If all of a sudden, uh, out of nowhere, comes this, this guy that's teaching incredible things, and he's healing and miracles, you don't, you don't run home to get your suitcase or to pack a lunch. You just keep following, because you don't want to miss it, because some of it might be for you. And so you just keep going. And next thing they know, they're days away from their house. And here they are on this mountainside. And this guy's talking. And for three days he's been with them teaching. And all of a sudden Jesus says, you know what? They need to eat. And, and he says, but they don't have anything. And I'm not going to send them back on the road uh, all that journey home without any food. Because they're not going to make it. So we need to do something uh, about it. So the disciples said to him, well, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. Directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks. He broke them and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. This is a a parallel, uh, again, of the lesson that he had taught last week that we read about, that the crumbs from the table, right? That, that the disciples would, would have it first and then they were, it was going to be their job to go out and to take the message to the world. The disciples, they didn't, they didn't understand it. Um, we'll keep reading. And the disciples gave it to the crowds. They all ate. They were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces that were left over. Those who, were, who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and children. And after sending away the crowds, Jesus got in the boat and went to the region of Magadan. First of all, let me just say this, because a lot of people struggle with this. This is not the same story as the feeding of the 5,000 that we read about a number of weeks ago. These are two separate occasions. This is why location matters. So when Jesus fed the 5,000, which was really, we said, about 30,000 with, with women and children, that was in the Jewish territory, with a totally different lesson for people to learn. Now he's in Gentile territory, and he does the same miracle for them. There's a lesson to be learned. He is the provider. He can do great things. He can change your life. He cares, and he provides. When it was the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples were the ones that came and talked to Jesus. Hey, you should probably send everybody home. They've been here for a while. They're kind of hungry. We don't really have any food, so you need to send them home. Jesus now knows what they're already thinking. So he goes and he says the same thing, but from his perspective. He's like, you know what? I think it's time that I send everybody home, but I don't want to send them home on empty stomachs because I care too much. They're not going to make it. So we need to do something about it. I don't want to send them away hungry. And so he does do something about it. The disciples' response was typical disciples, which is very encouraging for a guy like me, that I'm striving every day to try to follow Jesus, but there's just so often I just don't get it. And often I blow it. And often I forget. And often I say foolish things. 
The disciples didn't understand. They might have had some skepticism about Jesus as a Jewish teacher, feeding, touching the food that, that's going to be distributed to a bunch of Gentiles. Do we really want to be a part of this? And we're going to pass it out again. That's probably why Jesus gave it to the disciples to distribute. Go and touch the people that your religious leaders say that, that you're not supposed to touch. Make a difference in there. Get involved. But they don't understand it. Where are we going to get enough food? We don't have enough food, Jesus. What are we going to do? Well, how much do we have? we got seven loaves and we have a few fish. John Calvin, the great theologian, I think waxes eloquently in regards to verse 33, the disciples' question about where are we going to get bread. This is what Calvin says. He's a pretty deep uh, thinker, so if you're not a deep thinker, just try to grasp this. He goes, the disciples manifest excessive stupidity in not remembering earlier what Jesus had done in feeding the 5,000, right? It, how do you forget that? Either, either you're, you're with Jesus every day and he's just doing so many incredible things that you can't keep track of it, or you're not paying attention, which is what I think is going on with the disciples. They don't get it. Where in the world are we going to find? All we have are loaves and fish. And Jesus is like, yeah, right? He, he, he's... Jesus says, you know what, give it to me. He takes it and he gives thanks for it and he distributes it. We laugh at the disciples, but man, we are the disciples, right? God does such great things for us every day. And all of a sudden something bubbles up in our life and we're going, I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? I, I, man, I, this is a big one. I don't think God cares about this one. I don't think God's going to do anything with this. And, and, and it's like Jesus says, look, it's loaves and fish. I've done it before. I can do it again. I've got purpose and meaning and reason, and I care about you. We oftentimes claim that as Christians, we're, we're called to love everybody. We know this, to love everybody with the love of Jesus Christ. But so often then when it comes time to, to put our money where our mouth is, we come across people that we don't agree with or that we, we don't even like that much. And we tell ourselves, well, but the Bible says all I have to do is love, right? So, so I have a feeling of love for that person, right? That, that's what we think it is. And that is, that is a false love. That is not what God has called us to do. That is not what Jesus has called us to do. That is not, Jesus didn't go to on the cross because he had a great feeling for people. He went to the cross to show a true sacrificial love, the love that God calls us to love other people with. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the Apostle Paul really says, if you know the love of Christ, the love of Christ will compel you. In other words, it will be like a rocket launch. If you truly understand what it is that Christ has done for you, given his life up for you, God saw you and sent his son, and Jesus gave up his life to rescue you from sin, that you've been redeemed, pulled from the pit of hell, it should rocket launch us out into the lives of other people to say, whatever you're going through, whatever you're into, whatever you do, whatever you claim about yourself, I will love you with the love of Christ. Not just, I see you, but let me get into your life and let me do something about helping you know this Jesus that I know so well. This is what he's done for me, and this is what he wants to do for you. And so, 
Paul says, if you know the love of Christ, it will compel you. And then he goes on to say, so be an ambassador for Christ. In other words, be the spokesperson for the kingdom of heaven in the lives of other people. Loving people is deeper than, than just what we would call, I, I care. I care. I care about you. I care that there are people that are struggling with this. I care about, no, no. True care means I'm going to get involved in your life and love you to the Father. Later on, Jesus will tell the disciples, Matthew 25, whatever you do for the least of these, you're doing it for me. The disciples, again, don't understand. Like, well, I don't understand. When do we see you hungry and not give you food? When do we see you thirsty and not give you something to drink? When do we see you naked and not give you clothing? And Jesus said, whatever you did or didn't do for the least of these, is you did that for me. It, the love of Christ compels us to care about other people in a bigger way than just with our mouths and our, and our minds. If we know Christ, we make Him known. Jesus uh, takes the, the seven loaves and the few fish and He gives thanks. He loves on the people. He has great compassion on them compassion is just that it's it's greater than just seeing it's it's doing something uh, about it the word compassion is a deep feeling towards somebody it actually means a turning of the bowels right that that's the compassion means i hurt for you to the point where i'm going to do something about it we've got the compassion table set up again uh, this week, we heard from Anthony last week who shared uh, about his struggles growing up as a child living in a slum in Nairobi and is a part of the compassion program that's not just, hey, there's a lot of people in the world that are praying for you, Anthony. The thing that made a difference is that, is that somebody got involved in his life and showed him Jesus, wrote letters to him, said God loves you and cares about you. And there are people that said there's a hope for you and we're going to walk you through it. We're going to get involved in your life. That's what compassion is. Jesus shows that to the people, first of all, by giving them food, but it was so much more than the food that He gave them. Greater than the miracle of loaves and fishes multiplied, which now Jesus is two for two when it comes to that, is the incredible miracle that our lives... Because of the curse of sin, we, I know, are 100% selfish. Left to ourselves without a Savior, we are passionately pursuing everything in the world that is going to make us what we think is going to make us happy. That's just what we're, we're left to. Romans 6, 6 says we're enslaved to sin. Passionately pursuing self. Paul goes on to say, though, but it's in God's mercy in giving us His Son saved us. So we grasp a hold of that. We move from caring about ourselves to doing whatever it takes to show other people God's love. To give them more than what they know. More than what they believe that they need in life. We get to give them Christ. And verse 13 of Romans 6 says, we become instruments of righteousness. That God uses us to change the lives of people. What begins as an understanding of a great love that God has for us. 
that our lives are changed and now we can't hold it in. And, and we then, through what we know about Christ, we look at the world and we don't just see it and get angry, right? Because that's, that's happening a lot nowadays. We look at the world, we're just furious. We got to spout off about it. What we should do, if we have Christ in our lives, we look at the world and we have compassion. Our stomach turns because this is a world that needs Christ so badly. And we've got the answer to take it to Him. So rather than kick and scream at people who have no idea about who God is, about that they're just they're doing wrong and they're going, well, thanks for that, but do you have a solution? Yes, I have a solution. The solution is Jesus that cares about you and loves you and wants you to be in a relationship with Him, wants to give you an eternity. But it's got to start like it did with Jesus. He sets the example. It starts with compassion. He cares about people. We care about people because God cares about us. Everybody ate and was satisfied. The disciples go through and it says that they picked up seven baskets of everything that was left over. A lot of people like to study the numbers. and why, There were 12 baskets left over after the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and, and many say it's because there are 12 disciples. And so there was a, a basket for each of them. Now there's seven. Why? Some say because seven is the number of completeness. Uh, but ultimately, it, it doesn't really matter. What's interesting is that that word basket, when it's used in the feeding of the 5,000, the original language kind of means a handheld basket, that they would each have kind of a nice pile of bread. Uh, but when, when uh, Matthew talks about it here in chapter 15, the basket that is described is the same word that's used uh, in Acts when the Apostle Paul needs to escape out of the wall, out of the window, and they put him in a basket. In other words, a basket big enough to hold a guy. Uh, and so these are the baskets that they go around, and they've now collected seven full baskets of leftover bread. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, so I don't want to jump ahead. I don't want to ruin it, but it matters. What happens is that, that the day passes, Jesus gets in the boat, and they sail across uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're sailing, typical disciples, one of them goes, hey, did anybody bring any food? We don't have any bread, is what they say. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, right? And, and then he goes on to explain, we're going to look at it in a couple of weeks, he actually explains uh, that, he said, don't you remember when I fed the 5,000? And you had 12 baskets left over? Don't you remember when I fed the 4,000 like hours ago and you had seven baskets left over? And he said, I, the reason you had leftovers was really ultimately for them to understand that he always provides. Always. It takes us back to the understanding of, of God rescuing his people out of Egypt and leading them to the promised land. And they, they drop everything and they have to leave at night to get away from the Egyptians. And as they're out wandering in the desert, God says, every morning when you wake up, you're going to wake up and there's going to be bread on the ground waiting for you. Manna from heaven. And he said, but the one thing that you need to do is what? He said, you take only what you need for the day. And some people didn't. And what happened? They woke up the next morning and their bread was what? It was just a pile of worms. Because God said, trust me, I will always give you more than what you need for, for today. I will always provide for you. Can you trust me? And the same thing Jesus is telling his disciples. 
Yes, I had compassion on the people. Yes, I cared that they were hungry. Yes, I wanted to feed them. Yes, I gave them a miracle so that they could glorify God. But there were leftovers for you to understand that I will always take care of you. You have everything that you need to go out and do what it is that I have called you to do. Will you obey? Will you do it? Our growth in Christian maturity really begins when we make a decision to understand what God is up to in our life and to remember it each and every day, to make a memorial in our mind that God continues to do what He says He will do. We let it take root in our souls and constantly focus on how incredibly sufficient God is for all of our needs. He always comes through. Maybe not in a way that we think He should, but He always comes through. 1 Peter 1.3 says His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, everything that you need comes from God. You just need to trust Him. So you might not know this today. Whatever it is that you feel inside, maybe that feels like a void. Like I don't have, I don't know this Jesus. I don't have God in my life. Jesus will fill that overflowing. If you need joy, He will give it to you. If you need happiness, you're only going to find it in Him. If you need peace, accept the one who is our peace. He gives us what we need and then so much more rescues us from sin, from shame, from guilt, from death, from a a broken relationship with the Father. Because of Jesus, we are, because of Him, we're more than enough. He's who we need. You're his child with a purpose and a mission to tell the world what it is that he's done for you. So whatever you need, trust. Believe. See the incredible power of Jesus Christ along with his incredible love. The one that redeems you and calls you by name. Ephesians 3.20 says that Jesus is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. Will you do what he's called you to do? Christian, will you do what he's called you to do to go out these doors and to show compassion on a world that is in so much pain? Stop devoting all of our time and our energy to blowing a horn about how awful it is out there and let's go out and talk about how amazing our Savior is. That's what's going to change people. The other way just has people turn their back on you. They don't want to hear. They don't care what you have to say about how bad this world is. What they do care about is when you get to talk about how amazing our God is that he's changed your life. Tell that to people and let's watch what happens. To him be all glory for all generations forever and ever because they get to see a God at work who has done a miracle in my life, in your life, and can do it in theirs. You might not believe that that you have what it takes. You might not believe that that you can actually do it. But here's what God is saying. He's saying, jump. I see you. I'll take care of you. I will use you. I've rescued you. I'll redeem you. And I've got a purpose and a plan. Today, as we leave here, let's walk in the love of Christ, reminding ourselves of how great a love that he has given up his life for us. That we would live into that gratitude and then just out of it people would see the joy of Jesus in us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We, uh, we, we come again before you today on 
this Father's Day to be reminded of an incredible Father, the perfect Father, who only speaks words to us that, are, that lead us to, to truly knowing who we are in you. The one whose actions are always to help us to be the people that you have designed us to be. The one that has set out a plan for us and gives us everything we need to get there. The one that, that when we mess up, doesn't tell us how horrible we are, but that we're loved, that we're forgiven, uh, and that, that our lives can be redeemed. And the one that has sacrificed everything for us. God, we love you. You are our Abba, our Father, our Dad. Help us. God, help us as men in the room uh, to only follow your example. As we love others, as we love our spouses, our kids, as we set examples. God, give us what we need to be the fathers that you've called us to be. Thanks for the dads in this room who love big, who work hard, who set great examples for each and every person in their family, in their neighborhoods. God, bless them today. And Father, for, for the dads that maybe are today and just say, I'm struggling right now, thanks for loving them and telling them, I've got what you need. Trust me, jump. So Father, thank you. Thanks for, for being you. That's all we can ask for, because it's more than we need. Amen. Let's stand and close in worship.